Today's scripture comes from the book of James, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, who you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of God. Thank you, men, for reading God's word to us. Hi again, New Hope. It's great to see you again. If you uh, grew up in the 1980s or earlier, you may remember a program called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous with Robin Leach. Do you remember this? Robin Leach would uh, host, he was the host, and he would guide viewers on a tour of the mansions and the yachts and the private islands of the wealthiest people in the world. And if you were anything like me as a kid, you were wowed by the glamour of it all, the opulence. It was overwhelming. If you're too young to remember that show, uh, think of it as a precursor to MTV Cribs, uh, another show that was aimed at uh, impressing viewers with the extravagant homes of the rich and the famous. Well, we have been studying the letter of James And we're starting the final chapter today, and as James comes to the end of this letter, he wants us to look at the lives of the wealthiest, most powerful, most baller people of his his day. But we probably aren't going to walk away impressed, because what he tells us is troubling. It's frightening, in fact. James starts the chapter this way, come now, you rich Throughout this this book, he's been addressing, usually he addresses his readers as, my brothers, my beloved brothers and sisters, my siblings in Christ. But here it's, come now, you rich. He's addressing and, and he's writing about a whole different group of folks. And many scholars, they believe that who he's addressing and who he's talking about here are the wealthy, non Christian landowners of his day. That's who he has in view here. Those landowners had power. They got respect. They're the people that are referred to all the way back in chapter 2. James talks about influential folks, perhaps Roman and Jewish rich people, who, according to chapter 2, verse 6, oppressed Christians and dragged Christians into court unjustly. And James' message to these folks starts this way. He says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Weep and howl. What's this all about? How do we make sense of this? And what's the relevance of this for us? Well, as we try to make sense of what James has to tell us, we're going to look at it from three different angles. We're going to see the sins of the rich. We're going to see the justice of God. And then we're going to see the dangers of wealth. So first, let's look at the sins of the rich. 
These aren't the sins of all rich people, but it's the sins of these rich people in view in chapter 5. What are they guilty of? Well, several things. In verse 3, the second half, it says that you have laid up treasures in your last days. You see, these folks in part were guilty of loving and hoarding wealth. Loving and hoarding wealth. They had laid up treasure in the last days. And, and what are the last days? Well, the last days are, uh, it's a phrase that the New Testament uses often. And the last days simply means that time between Jesus' first coming, when he was born as a child, lived, died, rose again, ascended to the Father, and his second coming. So it's the time in between his first coming and his second coming. We right now are in the last days. And we have been ever since Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father after rising from the dead. And James is saying, we're in the last days. Time is running out, and here you are laying up treasure. Laying up treasure. Amassing fortune, even as the clock ticks. It's, it's like you're, you're a guy on a, on, a, on a sinking cruise ship, and you're at the buffet line loading up your plate while the ship goes down. And you're just trying to get as much food as you can. Even though you and the food and the buffet line and the ship are all going down. You see, they, they, these folks who James is talking to, they don't know what tomorrow will bring. Remember, he, he said that to us recently. Even last week, we saw that none of us knows what tomorrow will bring. James says our lives are, are a mist. But these folks aren't thinking about that. Instead, they're thinking about hoarding wealth. And, and the reason I say that they love and hoard wealth is because the language here implies that when it says that they're laying up treasure, it doesn't just mean they, they're interested in putting some money away. That word treasure means that this is where their heart is. This is what they care most about. Because Matthew, in Matthew 6, 19 to 21, here's what Jesus says. And, and James, in part, is alluding to these words from Jesus in Matthew 6. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For, listen, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. As you read James chapter 5, the beginning of that chapter, you probably hear echoes of what Jesus says here in Matthew 6. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. These folks, their heart was in their wealth. Tied up with it. They loved it. Notice wealth is not the problem here. It's, it's a love for that wealth, which leads to a hoarding of that wealth. So that's one thing they're guilty of. What else are they guilty of? Well, in verse 4, it tells us that they cheated the people who worked for them. The, the hired laborers that were sent out into these landowners' fields to do the work of the harvest, the work of, of, of sowing and reaping, were being defrauded by these wealthy people. They were not getting paid. Laborers in this day depended on their landowners for their survival. The lives of their families depended. They did not own land. They owned almost nothing. And so they depended. Their very livelihood was dependent on 
these wealthy landowners simply keeping their word and paying the money they owed them. But these folks were not paying. They were stealing. And they were in direct breach of God's law. Leviticus 19.13 says this, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. Now, now here's one way. Now, now listen, he goes on. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You see, so here's one way that you oppress and rob your neighbor. It's by holding back their wages. In fact, God says, don't even hold it an extra night. If you owe it to them now, pay them now. Do not delay. And in part, that's because these folks were dependent day to day. They didn't just live check to check. They lived day to day, expecting pay at the end of that arduous workday. And they were being defrauded. Maybe they were given excuses. Maybe these landowners just weren't returning their calls. The check's in the mail. It'll get there eventually, and they just weren't paying. What else are they guilty of? Look at verse 5. They were using their money to live self-centered, self-indulgent lives. So they were hoarding money. They were defrauding people to get money. And they were using their money to live self-centered, self-indulgent lives. You see, they cared for self and self alone. There's no generosity here. We don't get any sense of that. There's no self-denial even. Whatever they wanted, they had the money to get it, and so they would. They lived for their own bank account, their own household maybe. That's as far as their generosity went, to their own household, but not beyond. Not to their neighbor, not to their community. James says they're fattening themselves in the day of slaughter which could be read different ways, but but one way to read it is this, and I think this is an accurate way to to interpret this. They're fattening themselves, not realizing that they themselves will be slaughtered soon. Verse 6, here's what else they're guilty of. They were condemning and murdering innocent, peaceful people. Condemning and murdering innocent, peaceful people. Now, Now, how are they condemning people? Well, remember, back in uh, chapter 2, James says that wealthy folks were in the practice of oppressing poor Christians, these poor Jewish Christians, and, and, and taking them to court to take their money, to sue them, to have them com- con- condemned, in some cases, to prison. But that's not all this, this verse has in view. When James says you condemn and you murder innocent, peaceful people, we have to remember once again that these people depended on their daily wages to eat. By holding back their wages, they were starving these folks. It was in effect murder. They were being condemned to death because they couldn't afford to eat. All of this James lays at the feet of these wealthy landowners and says, here's what you are charged of, charged with. Hoarding and loving money, defrauding others to get money, people who depend on you, using your money to live self-centered, self-indulgent lives, and even condemning others, killing them if need be, just to get and keep your wealth. 
Verse 4, James says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, listen, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You see, the, 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 the cries, the pleas for help from these economically oppressed people, they've reached the ears of God. God has heard their cries. In fact, these wages that these landowners had kept from the people, they had kept it and they had used it or they had saved it and they didn't realize that those very stolen wages were crying out to God against them. They have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. It's a wonderful name for God. The Lord of hosts. You know what this means? Lord means he's Lord, he's master, he rules. The word hosts, hosts has to do with angelic beings. You know, you know what, 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 this picture of God here? It's the picture of God as a, a warrior king leading an army of angelic soldiers, an angelic force. He's saying, I'm going to war against these unjust landowners. I'm going to war on behalf of the economically oppressed believers, my children who have been stripped of dignity, stripped of the very ability to feed their own families. I'm going to war on their behalf. So, he says, if you are robbing these folks, my people, weep and howl because judgment is coming. And that takes us to the second part. The justice of God. We saw what the sins of these rich people were, and now we're going to look at the justice of God. Remember, he says, come now, you rich, and weep and howl. That, that sounds like prophet language, doesn't it? If maybe, maybe you thought of that when you read those words. It sounds like the way uh, the, the Old Testament prophets would sometimes speak. In fact, that word howl there, it shows up 21 times in the Old Testament from the mouths of prophets. Proclaiming judgment. They're saying, God is coming. He will judge. You better. You're, you're going to be howling. Cry out for mercy. Shows up 21 times in the Old Testament. It only shows up once in the New Testament. Right here. Only place. James is, is speaking like an Old Testament prophet. He's speaking with that prophetic authority. He's, he's bellowing out a warning. Because miseries are coming upon you, he says. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. You've been living fat, but things are going to soon take a turn. The day of judgment is fast approaching, he says. There, there, there's a judge coming. He, he's the landowner of all landowners. He owns your land. He owns your life. And he's coming to collect. It's impending doom here. It's, it's, it's scary. That's why he said these are troubling words. These are frightening words. And in fact, the way James starts talking about this judgment, it's so interesting. He starts talking about judgment as if it's already happened or it's, it's already happening. He's not even using the future tense here. Look what he says in verse 2. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. 
Why, why does he talk about judgment in this way? He doesn't say your, your riches will rot. Your garments will one day be moth-eaten. We have to assume these, these landowners were still living fat. They, their, their clothes looked fine. Maybe if they heard James say this, they say, well, look, my, my clothes are not moth-eaten. You must be thinking of someone else. I look, I look fine. Last I checked, my riches aren't rotting. They're, they're, they're amassing. They're growing. No, but James says, no, no, no. They've already rotted. They've already corroded. You know what James is doing here? He's using what's called the, the prophetic perfect tense. Prophetic Prophets will sometimes pro, pro, talk about the future using this kind of perfect tense that says, it, this, this future reality is so certain, you can bank on it so hard that we can talk about it as if it's already happened. It's as good as done. That's one way we can read this. This judgment is so inescapable, it's as if it's already started. Another way to think about it is this way. In one sense, their wealth was already decaying. I mean, anything you own, from the moment it comes into your possession, it's in the process of getting older and rotting and decaying. Maybe the process is so slow that we don't notice it. But he says, look, all that you have, it's all decaying and wasting now, although you may not realize it. And one of the reasons he can say this about these possessions is because these, these possessions and these, this wealth, it was not being used for the purposes for which it was intended. God gives wealth. God gives possessions. And he is not against wealth or possessions, but he gives them to us for a reason. They're meant to be used for a purpose. They're meant to be used to glorify God ultimately and, they're, they're, and, and, and through serving others, meeting others' needs, generosity, sharing. But they weren't being used that way. And because it's not being used for the purposes for which it was given to you, it's rotting. You know what this reminds us of? Back in the book of Exodus, chapter 16, God sends manna, bread from heaven, to feed his people. Do you remember this? And what does he tell? He instructs his people in Exodus 16, everyone is to gather as much manna as they need. Just go out and get as much as you need. And then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. Take as much as you need, but don't hoard it. However, goes on to say, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning but it was full of maggots and began to smell. What happened when you took that manna and didn't use it for the purposes for which it was given to you? What happens when you took it on your terms, to use it on your terms, to fulfill your own selfish desires, regardless of what God says about it? It's spoiled. It disintegrated. God gives wealth for giving, for serving. It's part of the reason that we have, if we have money, if you have any money, part of, the reason, part of the reason you have that is not just to provide for you and for your family, but it's to provide for others. This is a, this is a, a, a truth that's sprinkled throughout the Scriptures. In the book of Ephesians, I mean, if you read the Old Testament, laws in the Old Testament, you'll see it time and again, God is telling the people uh, of Israel that uh, their crops, their possessions are meant to be used and shared. Seek the good of the alien, the sojourner, the stranger in your land, 
Seek the good of the poor. Seek the good of the, 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 the needy with the abundance that God's given you. Part of the reason you have it is to share. In the book of Ephes- That's not just an Old Testament truth because in the book of Ephesians, God commands Christians. He says, if you're a Christian, don't steal. Instead, get a job and work, he says. And why? It's very interesting. He doesn't say, get a job and work so that you can save money and have a wonderful future. He says, if you're a Christian, don't steal. Instead, get a job and work so that you will have enough to share. It's all about sharing. God's kingdom is a place of generosity. It's a place of hospitality. It's a place where where brothers and sisters serve each other mutually, and not just brothers and sisters within the community. We serve those outside the household of faith as well, our neighbors. So God says, work and enjoy the fruit of your labor. I'm not against money, but he says, live according to your needs. Don't exploit people to get wealth, and don't enjoy wealth at the expense of others. You have excess, don't hoard it. Use it, share it. These people were not doing that, and so their fortunes will rot and disappear. And they will be judged. Because the cries of the oppressed have reached the Lord of hosts. He will act on their behalf. He will go to war for them. In the section that comes next, we're, gonna, we're not going to get to it until next week. In that next section, James says in verse 8 and 9, the coming of the Lord is at hand. He's almost here. He's returning. And then he says in verse 9, Behold, the judge is standing at the door. got to ask a question here. Why, why is James addressing these people in this letter? Because if you remember, this letter was written to scattered, mostly Jewish Christians living in communities that had been, that had been disp- in, in various communities, but they had been dispersed um, because of uh, political, economic, and even religious reasons. So he's writing to Christians. Why is he addressing non-Christians here? Wrong. This is a letter mostly to poor, scattered Jewish Christians. One commentator puts it this way. He says, James writes to non-Christians for the benefit of Christians. Remember, James began his letter by talking to these mostly poor Jewish Christians about suffering. He says in chapter 1, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. talks to them about the trials they were experiencing. These people were suffering. They were in pain. And now, as he's getting to the end of his letter, he goes back to talk about their suffering again. Next week, we're going to see what James has to say to these folks about how they can deal with the suffering they're facing. How can they, how can they wait for God and depend on God and trust God even as they experience injustice? That's next week. But here he has something to say to and about the people who are inflicting that suffering. And what he has to say is it's for the good of his brothers and sisters. It's for their comfort. You see, he's addressing these these wealthy, unjust landowners, but he's doing it for the sake of 
his suffering brothers and, Christ, uh, brothers and sisters. He's, he's addressing those people in order to comfort us. It's for their comfort and it's for our comfort. Imagine the comfort and the encouragement that this brought to God's people. When he says, I have heard your cries for relief. I have heard your pleas for justice. I've seen your suffering. These are words that have comforted God's people throughout history. Consider persecuted families around the world throughout history and even now to whom God says, your cries for justice have reached my ears. I'm the Lord of hosts. I will not leave you defenseless. Think about Christian slaves in this country for centuries. And even Christian slaves who are being trafficked now throughout the world. Think about suffering missionaries throughout the world. How encouraging is it to know God hears. He sees. Our brothers and sisters worldwide in places where they are being killed right now in places like Nigeria. As Boko Haram seems to have so much power to just snatch life, snatch children in places like Iran, parts of China and elsewhere. Even here, think of, think of impoverished Christians who are dealing with unjust landlords right now. Corrupt officials. Unrighteous employers who exploit them. God is saying, you are seen. You are heard. I will not ignore you. I'm at the door. You don't need to lose hope. And not only do you not, you don't need to seek vengeance on your own terms either. Because as James says in chapter 1, verse 2, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Do not seek justice on your own terms and according to your own wisdom. Do not seek vengeance and retribution. I will judge justly, he says. And that's aimed at comforting and encouraging them. You know, David Paulison, who was a counselor, a late author and counselor, and, and teacher, he, he observed that throughout the scriptures, most often when God talks about judgment, if you look at the context wherein he's talking about his judgment, it's usually the purpose of that mention of impending wrath is to comfort his people. You see, so often he talks about judgment so that his people will realize justice is coming. God doesn't use judgment as a scare tactic. He does warn. There's no doubt he's doing that here. But he also talks about judgment to, to cause us to not lose hope, to say, listen, judgment is coming. You want justice? No, 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 no. God wants justice far more than you do. So these words here, they, they come to us and to Christians in the first century to comfort, and also to protect them, to protect them from, from thinking that there's no hope in sight. It also keeps them from envying the wealthy. And God wants to keep us from that. If you are in a place where you have been exploited, maybe your family has been oppressed, 
or others you know have been, and you, and you, you start to envy those who have power and money. Maybe, maybe you're not after justice so much, you would like to just see the dynamics reversed. I want to be in that position of power. And God wants to protect us from that kind of thinking. Some of you maybe have read Psalm 73. The author of Psalm 73 talks about envying the wicked. He, he says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He saw people living it up on the backs of poor folks. And he says, I, I, I began to want to walk in their shoes. I'm tired of being on the other end of this. But God doesn't leave him there. God, God awakens him to a vital truth. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. You see, when he comes face to face with God, he approaches God, God instructs him, and he starts to realize uh, these wicked, wealthy folks who are exploiting and robbing, they're not to be envied. Verse 18, truly you, O God, have set them in a slippery place. You make them fall to ruin. God says, don't envy them. Proverbs 3.31 says, do not envy a man of violence or do not envy the oppressor and do not choose any of his ways. Psalm 37 says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. God wants to protect us from desire to have wealth and power. He wants to protect us from the love of materialism, the love of money. The reformer and theologian John Calvin says, James has regard to the faithful that they, hearing of the miserable destiny of the rich, might not envy their fortune. And also knowing that God would be an avenger of the wrong they suffered, they might, with a calm and resolved heart, bear them. You see, God's helping his people to be able to say, I will wait for you, Lord. Yes, I'm crying out. I'm not just silent. I'm crying out for justice. I'm pleading with you for justice. But I'm doing it with a calm, resolved heart that trusts you. We live in an age of outrage, I've heard it said. And maybe part of the reason is because there's a lot to be outraged about. But it's interesting that even no matter how outraged we get with the injustices of this world, we're so limited in our ability to even see and prioritize those injustices. We get worked up about one particular sort of injustice, and we're often blind to many other forms of injustice. Myopic, limited. God cares about all of them, and he sees all of them. And we, 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 we may see these, these different needs and injustices throughout the world as if they're, they're almost in competition with, an, with one another. We, we can't take care of one because we'd be ignoring the other. And we find ourselves kind of unable to even know how to push back against evil. Oh, God's going to entangle all of that. He sees it all. The cries for justice have reached his ear. He is at the door. And he will make all things right. 
So you see, these words are troubling, they are frightening words, but they can also provide us with comfort, comfort we need, and, and perspective, and warnings too. And that takes us to the last part. Another reason that this is all in here in James is to warn us about the dangers of wealth. The dangers of wealth. The Bible has a lot to say about the dangers of wealth. I just want to look at what James 5 has to say about the dangers of wealth. Why, why is this pertinent for Christians to hear, by the way? No matter what socioeconomic bracket you would find yourselves in, it's pertinent for all of us because we are, we are not so unlike these unjust landowners. I mean, our circumstances may be different, but we are naturally very much like them. And given the right circumstances, we might do the same thing that they were doing. Wealth is deceitful, the Bible says. We've heard that power corrupts. And people who at one point may be very just and very, very fair in their financial dealings can, when the circumstances change, find themselves becoming fraudulent. We've all heard of political reformers, people who go into office to fix things because the government's so corrupt. And give them a couple of years, and what happens? They start to reflect the same kind of corruption that they went in there to fix. It's true around the world because they've succumbed to the power of wealth. Professing Christians can, can succumb the power of wealth. You don't have to be that wealthy to succumb. Think about it. Professing Christians in this very country have committed horrible, horrible injustices. Some people that I would look to as heroes of the faith who I've learned from Jonathan Edwards, one of the great theological minds and authors in American history. George Whitfield, one of the great, if not the greatest evangelist and public evangelist in history. Both of them slave owners, promoters of chattel slavery. You look at that and say, how, how could that even be? Knowing what they knew about God, how could that be? Blinded by the comforts afforded them by cheap labor, free labor. And so they were willing to buy and sell people and break up families, separate children from their parents and husband from wife and sell them and buy them and own them like property. And, and they rationalized that practice away by twisting God's word at times if they had to. Now, now are we that different? Is, is that beyond possibility for us? Anyone, any one of us. The Bible says those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. And that's all of us. The love of money, the love of luxury, the love of comfort can lead us down this road. And we're constantly bombarded, we're enticed to love stuff. to accumulate stuff from a very young age. And so we all need to see wealth for what it is. In every form, we need to see it as, as rotting, as decaying, as disintegrating, 
unless it's being used for the purposes for which God gave it to us. So how is wealth dangerous, according to James? Here's a couple of ways. One, it gets our heart. It gets our heart. That's what we see in, in, in verse 3, the second part. Lay up treasures. We lay up treasures. Remember what Jesus said. Do not lay up treasures for yourselves on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Wealth can take our hearts. That's why Psalm 62 verse 10 says, If riches increase, set not your heart on them. It's not bad if your riches are increasing right now. Praise God if your wealth is increasing. Set not your heart on that. Another danger of wealth that we see here in James is that Wealth can start to, to warp our minds so that we start to see people just as a means to get money or obstacles to getting money. We start to view people through that lens. That's what happened here. They were seeing their laborers as a means for them to just increase their wealth. They weren't humans anymore. And paying those, if they were humans, then they, they deserved payment. But, but paying them, no, that's an obstacle to me increasing my wealth. And so I will withhold wages from them. And we start to see people in terms of means to help us get richer or there are obstacles we need to overcome to get richer or to protect our wealth. Again, go back to the history of chattel slavery. And by chattel slavery, I still mean slavery that involved the buying and selling of humans as property here in the U.S. What was going on there? People were seen as a, as a means to amass wealth as quickly as possible through free labor. And so because they're no longer really people anymore, we're willing to hurt and use and exploit others to get money without even noticing it. You see, if money is your God, then people are either an obstacle or a means to get to your God. But if God is your God and people are image bearers. They are brothers and sisters. They are neighbors. They are co-heirs with you in Christ. If God is your God, then, then you are for them. You are not against them. And, you, and in fact, you have a responsibility toward them. Here's the last danger that I think we see here. Danger of wealth. We, we get used to luxury and self-indulgence. Slowly just get used to luxury and self-indulgence. Think about it. There may be certain things in your life now that you take for granted. You feel like you need. You didn't have them a long time ago, and you seem to be okay. But now, all of a sudden, it, it's become almost a need. That desire has become a need. I remember watching, um, I forget the name of the show. There's a program on, the, on the, 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 um, one, of the, one of the home networks. I forget what it was. I was watching it with my wife. And, and it, was, it, it, it followed this couple as they were remodeling their home. And um, they're... they're you know how remodeling your home can be a, a pretty um, difficult process, right? Lots of uh, tension, lots of arguments. Um, but this, this family was off the hook. It was crazy. It's this, this one woman, she, she, she was having a conversation with, with the contractor who was laying the tile in their bathroom, and, and the, the contractor told her, listen, um, because of the way things are set up here, we're not going to be able to give you the heated tiles that you wanted. And this woman immediately started crying. 
and screaming. And she says, you expect me to stand on cold tiles? I need to step out of that shower every day, and I'm not going to. And she's bawling. And I thought, man, there's probably a time in this woman's life where she didn't care about cold tiles. Now it's become a priority. It's a need. She fired that guy because he couldn't give her what she wanted. You see, we get so used to luxury, self-indulgent purchases, and the needs of others lose importance. Those are just some of the dangers of wealth. I think James points them out to us, and they're a danger for all of us, for all of us. Perhaps that's why the wise man, Agur, in Proverbs 30, said these wise words. He's praying to the Lord, and he says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you. And say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. See, Agur says, I, I, I need something to live on. I want money, but Lord, protect me, protect me from this evil, from being so full, from having my my heart so taken up with wealth that it becomes my God and I no longer need you anymore. I want to end with some questions for us, questions for us to think about um, in response to James chapter 5, 1 through 6. And these are not meant to induce guilt or manipulate. These are questions that I want to wrestle with and I want to invite you to wrestle with as as well. Are our purchases motivated by self-indulgent pursuit of luxury? Now, 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 God doesn't hate comfort and he doesn't hate nice things and he gives his people wonderful things, all right? So, so you need to wrestle with this to, 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 to discern where the line is. There's no formula, and I certainly can't give it to you, and the Bible doesn't either, but I think it's worth wrestling with. Are our purchases motivated by a self-indulgent pursuit of luxury? Another way to look at it, am I just accumulating and hoarding stuff? Am I just accumulating and hoarding stuff? And here's the the flip side of that. Here's another question. Look at it more positively. Do I give regularly and generously to meet the needs of others? Do I give regularly and generously to meet the needs of others? And I would include in that, do I give to the church regularly and generously to meet the needs of others? Here's another question. Do the ways that that you make and use money align with God's agenda to bring glory to himself and to good to others? Do the ways you make and use your money align with God's agenda to bring him glory and to do good to others? Here's another question I heard from a pastor that really helped me, and I'll share it with you. Do you have people in your life to check you and to tell you that enough is enough. Like, like are, there, are there balances in your life? Like, people that are going to be like, wait, wait a second. Seriously, do you really need that? Like, does anyone have permission in your life to, to talk to you like that? 
And does anyone know you well enough to be able to do that with love, right? We're not talking about people uh, holding un, 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 ungodly authority over you to, to guilt you or to, to control your, your money. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about someone close to you, maybe in your family, a friend, a loved one who knows you well enough to be able to ask honestly without judging questions like that. Here's the last, last question. If someone saw your spending patterns, maybe it's your credit card statement, your bank statements, if they, if they saw that information, would they conclude this person loves God and is heavily invested in his kingdom? They are committed to the good of others and they are committed to the glory of God. Again, the way we use our money is no different from the world's, and that, that certainly does say something about us, doesn't it? Now, I think that if we really wrestle with those questions, honestly, none of us is going to come out feeling just great. We're going to get pinched a bit as we do that, or maybe we're going to really feel conviction. But the fact is that for all of us, all of us, all of us, it's it's so easy for us to be outraged at the, the wealthy, unjust folks in James chapter 5. But we don't have to be that wealthy to face that kind of judgment. We've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God and we've all taken what God has given us and used it for purposes for which it was not given to us. We're all guilty. And so what do we do? I hope you know what, the, what, the, what your hope is. You know what your hope is. There's a Savior who is grace for you and for me, who is grace for people who are greedy and stingy, ungenerous, hoarders. God has grace for us, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You know, when, J- when, when Paul says those words in 2 Corinthians 8, it's a, it's a motive towards generosity, right? He's saying, listen, it, it, be generous because your Savior was generous to you. And it's a motivation for us to be generous. But more than that, it's a motivation for us to believe and to trust him and to receive his grace. And to walk out repentance, too, through generosity. It's a great way to repent of our misuse of money is to be more generous. It's a very practical way of repenting and turning around. And as we do this, we receive the grace of Jesus Christ, trust in him that that we will not be judged. If we have believed in him, that we will not face judgment, all he has for us is grace. And allow that grace to transform us into generous people, people who are not as impressed by wealth, who aren't looking to live lifestyles of the, the rich and famous, but are looking to live lifestyles of the grateful and generous and content That's what life in his kingdom looks like. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your generosity towards us. We simply ask that you would help us to reflect that generosity. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to to see the grace that you have shown us in Jesus Christ, who though he was rich for our sake, he became poor. And Lord, help us to, to loosen our hands on the possessions you've given us. Help us to figure out how to use them for your glory and for the benefit of others. 
Lord, we're no, I'm not trying to, I don't want to uh, uh, bind anyone's conscience beyond what you have for them. I don't want to guilt anyone into, into feeling bad about things that they don't need to feel bad about. Lord, please don't allow that to happen. We pray that your spirit would take hold, that your spirit would move and bring conviction only where it's necessary, but right there, Lord, and, and give us a heart to respond in repentance and faith. We love you, our generous God, and we look forward to seeing the justice that you will do. And we look forward to seeing you set all things right. In your name, amen. New Hope, let's, let's come to the table and let's enjoy together the sacrament the, the, the pictures it embodies the grace of God in Jesus Christ for us. Though he was rich, he became poor for us. Though he did not have to, he allowed his blood to be spilled. He laid out his body for us. And so as we come to this table, we don't need to come flashing money. We don't need to cover the bill here. The bill has already been covered. He welcomes us with empty hands to come to him and receive his grace. And so if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, this, what we're about to do here is, is it, it's an outward sign of that inward reality. If you have trusted in Christ, if you have you've trusted in his blood spilled for you, his body laid out for you, dead and buried and risen again for your salvation, then come to this table and eat and drink. And if you haven't believed in Jesus Christ, and again, this is a outward sign of an inward reality. And if that reality is not inwardly true for you, you have not truly believed in Jesus, then there's no point in coming and taking this bread, taking this cup. In, in fact, it, it, it's, it's dangerous. It's counterproductive. So take this time instead to meditate on the claims of Jesus, to pray through some of these meditations up here on the wall. I'm going to pray, break the bread. I'll invite the deacons to come up and we'll partake. Lord Jesus, would you please take this sacrament that you instituted and use it, Lord, to help us wait for you, to help us trust in you, to help us not worship anything else but you. Use this ordinance, Lord, to deepen our love for you and to help us relax our grip on wealth and possessions and everything else that rivals you in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.